continuing working our way through the book of Acts. And boy, what a, by God's grace, what a, what a great passage to accompany a, a baptismal service as Peter discusses baptism in the text that we're looking at this morning. Just as a reminder, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Just as a reminder, Peter has just finished his, his message to the Jews. He's talked about where they are in God's timeline the, the timeline of the last days and the, the need to, to call upon the name of the Lord. And then he's also told them some things about who Jesus is. Uh, he was the Messiah. He's the one prophesied. And they have crucified him. And with that incredible bad news, this realization that, that they are the ones who are responsible for the death of the Messiah and that we're in the, the time in which a person needs to call upon the name of the Lord before the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the, the, the people who've heard Peter just say that respond. And I'm going to read their response, and then Peter's response to their rep- response here in verses 37 through 41. Now, when they, and that's Peter's audience, the Jews there, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Heavenly Father, we are excited this morning uh, to be able to open your word together. Lord, we're, we're sad about being apart from one another. We continue to, to, to mourn that. We acknowledge that to you this morning, and, and yet we trust we trust your purposes in all this, and in the midst of, of hard times, we rejoice that there are this morning those among us who are going to profess their faith in your son Jesus and, and proclaim that publicly through baptism. And so we, wor- we realize that you are working uh, even in the midst of hard circumstances, perhaps especially in hard circumstances. We, we rejoice in that, and we praise you for that this morning. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Well, I, I am optimistic that God is using this time right now, that God is using a very difficult time in the life of his church for his glory, for our strengthening. I think God is growing his church in some ways as a result of the difficult time that we're encountering. In fact, I think one of the ways that God is strengthening his church right now is in helping us understand the nature of the gospel, and to deepen our understanding of what it truly means to be a Christian, what it means to to walk in obedience to God. I read kind of a a sad study that was uh, conducted by the Barna Research Group. It said that right now during the coronavirus epidemic and during the COVID-19 stuff as churches have shut down, they've found that a third of professing Christians have just completely, completely shut down in terms of involvement in church. They're not digitally streaming anything, not involved in meeting in person, obviously, with the church. And so they're a third of professing Christians just completely separated from fellowship with other believers. 
they, they found that another third are digitally streaming other churches. So they're not really part of their church right now, but they're just kind of digitally streaming other churches, which, which reminded me of, of one of the funniest lines that anyone has said to me during this time. Whenever someone and I were talking about something and they, they pretended to be very offended by what, they, what I had said, and they said, I may have shared this already, but they said, that's it, I'm out of here, I'm switching live streams, which I, uh, I found very funny. But a third, a third of Christians completely separated from the life of the church. Now, that's, that's sad, but I think it's also a good thing. It could be a good thing. Because the, the North American church has said such a, a minimalistic understanding about what it means to be a Christian, such a, a, a low bar in terms of thinking about what it means to be a Christian. For example, we say or we think that all a person needs to do is just kind of believe some some facts about Jesus. Someone shares some facts about Jesus, and they say, well, you know, I, I agree with those, so I, I guess I must be a Christian. Or our, our parents went to church, and they brought us to church, and so it's always been pretty easy to be a part of the life of the church, and right now, it's, it's difficult. And so I think that's one of the ways in which God is going to strengthen his church. He's going to call all of us, cause all of us to think carefully about what does it actually mean to be a part of, of God's family what does it mean to, to be a believer? It's not just saying some words like, God, forgive me. It's not, that doesn't make me a Christian any more than just saying the words, I do, makes me married. There's something deeper that God calls his people toward. In fact, in the book of Acts, it's very interesting. In the book of Acts, as Luke writes the book of Acts, there are several things that he describes as part of being a Christian, several elements of being a Christian. He'll talk sometimes about repentance and sometimes about the need to place your faith in Jesus Christ, believe. Sometimes he'll talk about a uh, baptism. Sometimes he'll talk about receiving the Holy Spirit. There are several different words that Peter and Paul, as, as Luke describes what they say, will, will use to describe the, the, the process of being part of the church. Now, we're saved by faith alone. Let me be really clear as, as we talk this morning. We are saved by faith alone, apart from any works that we do. But what becomes very clear in the book of Acts is that faith is never alone. In other words, we're saved by faith alone, but faith operates. Faith, faith produces things. There are things that cause faith, and there are things that faith produces that are, accompany true conversion. In fact, here, here's kind of the main thing that I want us to think about as we look at these verses in verses 37 through 41. As we see the response of these people, we realize that every human being, here's what I want us to think about, every human being, when confronted with the reality of their sin by God's grace, should ask the question, what shall I do? I'm aware by God's grace of the reality of my sin. Now, now, what do I do? What needs to be my response as I become a part of the people of God? And what I want to do in the time that we have together this morning is kind of walk through six things that we see in this passage that a right response to the gospel requires. So, so six things that a right response to the gospel requires. And, and here's the first thing that we see in this passage. A right response to the gospel message, first of all, requires the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. So we're here in verse 37, and remember what's taken place. So Peter and the apostles and the rest of the disciples are out 
proclaiming the gospel, they're speaking in tongues, and every person is hearing the wonders of God declared in their own language, and now they, they ask what's going on, and Peter gives this message, and again, there's the, the declaration of here's where you are in God's prophetic timeline according to Amos chapter 2, and now here's, uh, where we are, here's who Jesus is, as the, as the psalmist David declares, and then he kind of comes to that conclusion again, okay, now this, this Messiah, he's the one you crucified. God's day of judgment is coming, all his enemies are going to be dealt with, and you are obviously his enemies because you crucified the Messiah, and what does verse 37 tell us? Look, look at your text. It says in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now notice it doesn't say they, they cut themselves to the heart. Their heart was cut. In other words, it was, it's, a, it's a passive voice. Someone else is doing the convicting here. And we know from the book of Acts, that's the work of the Holy Spirit Jesus had promised that when the Spirit comes, he would convict the world concerning sin, and now the Holy Spirit is doing exactly what God said he would do, convicting the world concerning, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, we know in the life of the believer that the work of the Spirit is involved in, in regeneration and bringing life. To properly respond to the gospel message is impossible without God first working within our hearts. John chapter 3 Jesus talks about how the, the Spirit brings life and we're born again. In 1 John 5, John tells us that every person who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born again. So the person who's able to believe that Jesus is the Christ has been born again. The Spirit has brought life. What does a person do to escape God's judgment and enter into fellowship with him? Before we can respond rightly to the gospel message, God must do his work through his Holy Spirit in our life. There's a, a famous theologian who talks about how whenever he was in college, he was, he was not a believer yet. I mean, he was in college, and he was kind of walking across the campus, and someone came up to him, and they said, uh, Sir, are, are, you, are, are you saved? He was one of the campus evangelists. And this theologian had never heard that terminology before in his life, and he goes, Am I saved from, from what? You know, like, what am I in danger from? For a person to rightly respond to the gospel we first must understand that we're in danger. And that requires not work we can do in ourselves, but something that God must do. God must bring conviction. And that's what happens here. There's conviction. And obviously, as we think about people we love, wanting them to respond rightly to the gospel message, just means prayer must be involved. A realization that our, our gospel presentation doesn't rely on our own efforts alone, on our own ability to communicate, but upon God doing his work in the hearts of people we love. Here's the second thing we see about a right response to the gospel message. A right response to the gospel message also requires repentance from sin. It requires repentance from sin. Now, in verse 38, there's a lot of things that are happening. In fact, let's, let's think kind of big picture about what Peter's going to say here. He's going to say, repent and be baptized. And sometimes the question that, that people have is, is they look at what Peter is saying here. Is they say, okay, what exactly is required for a person to become a Christian? Like, at what moment do you, do you precisely become a Christian? Now, that's not the question that Peter is answering here, but it's a question we often has, have as we look at this text. So what, what exact moment do you pass from, so here, I'm, I'm in my sins, I'm, I'm dead to sin, and now I'm, 
now I'm a Christian, I'm in Christ. It, what, what moment does that happen? I remember whenever Whitney and I were getting married, uh, I, was, I was asking the question, okay, exactly what, what second do we get married? You know, we, we get the marriage license, are we married then? Well, no, okay, well, then we walk in the church service, are we, are we married at that point? Well, no, okay, so then we have the declaration of intent, we have the marriage vows, we have the exchange of rings. At, at, at what point have we become married? Then there's the, then there's the, the declaration by the, the pastor. I now, you know, I now pronounce you man and wife. And then, and then later, you have to sign the marriage license. And um, I'll tell you, that's probably the most, and Diane knows this, that's like the most nervous part of me is for the pastor performing weddings is, I can't tell you how many people I forgot to send the marriage license in for. Just kidding. Uh, to the couple in here who I'm about to marry in a couple months. Uh, no, I've never forgotten, by God's grace, okay? So at, at what moment, at what moment do you get married? Or what would you say, what's, if someone says, how do you get married, what, what would you tell them? Well, you wouldn't say, well, okay, all you need is a, a pastor to pronounce you man and wife, and at that moment you're married. All those other things are, are, are a part of it. You wouldn't just focus on, on one moment of it. And, and sometimes, in our, again, in our North American culture, we're so focused on a, a very reductionistic understanding of what it means to be a Christian. How do you become a Christian? We well, just believe some facts. That's not biblical. And those facts never exist by themselves. There's, there's a context for them. And, and apart from these other things, true salvation has not occurred. Yes, I, I need a pastor to pronounce this man and wife, but, but apart from the, the marriage license, those words have no, no meaning. There's, there's a fruit that, that comes from the vows that we make. Now, the, the same is true when it comes to salvation. We are saved not by our works, but by God's grace alone, and we respond to God's grace as he works in our hearts by, by believing in him, by, by trusting in him. But there are other things that accompany that, that let us know that that belief is, is true saving faith. And the first thing we see here is that there's repentance. There's repentance. A person cannot be a Christian if they have not repented of their sins. Now, repentance is not a work. Repentance means I'm, I'm aware of my sin. There's, a, there's an intellectual component of it. Someone, someone lets me know about sin, and I, I now intellectually understand what they're saying. And then there's, for lack of a better word, there's, there's an emotional response. Someone tells me that what I've done is sin, and, and I'm... I'm revolted by it. There's a sense of revulsion as I think about my sin. And then there's a, what you might call a volitional, a, a, a commitment of the will saying, okay, I, I know I'm revolted by this thing. I, I no longer desire to, to walk in this. Maybe a, a husband has been made aware that he's not treating his wife well. He's not, he's not helping her in the way that she needs. And, and so he, he thinks about it. He goes, well, I, I can't, I, I agree that I haven't been the husband that I need to be. And and, and I'm, I'm, I'm revolted by this. How, how in the world could I not, my lovely wife, this beautiful bride, how can I not be the person that she needs me to be? And I, I'm deciding to turn from that. That's, that's repentance. And repentance, we see in Scripture, is absolutely necessary for salvation. In Acts chapter 3, we'll read, Repent, therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Repentance and forgiveness are, are dependent upon one another. John the Baptist and Jesus both preached repentance. Acts chapter 5, we read that God exalted Christ to his right hand as leader and savior in order to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance and forgiveness of sins go together. Acts chapter 17, Paul would say, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to Repent. Repentance is necessary for a person to obtain eternal life. 
to turn from their sins. There's a Puritan pastor, and uh, he was talking, his name was Roland Howell, uh, Roland Hill, and he was uh, quite discouraged by his ministry at one point. And uh, one time, in this time of discouragement, he was, he was studying, he looked out his study window, and he, he saw his, one of the people in his church, a pig farmer, and the pig farmer was leading his pigs to their slaughter. And the pastor watched him do this and noticed the pigs were following him. And later, he's kind of frustrated. He thinks, man, that, that pig farmer has the ability to, to lead pigs to the slaughter, but, but I don't have the ability to, to lead people to Jesus sometimes. And so he went back and he, he talked to the farmer and the, he said, I, you know, how can you do that? How, how do you have the ability to, to cause even pigs to follow you into a slaughterhouse? And the farmer said, look, did, didn't you see what I was doing? As I was walking along, I was, I was dropping crumbs. And these pigs were following me be, be, because of the crumbs. Hill, the, Roland Hill, as he, as he thought about this, he says, you know, those pigs were willing to enter into death for a few crumbs. Repentance is turning from the crumbs. Repentance is saying, okay, I, I'm rejecting the crumbs. A person who's, who's not repented of their sins is not a Christian. They, they've continued to follow the, 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 the rewards of the world, saying, okay, I'm, I'm more willing to do this than to seek life in Christ. I'd encourage us to think about what are the crumbs that, that we're clinging to that lead to death? Maybe this morning as you think about the gospel and God's call on you to, to repent and respond rightly to who he is. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's a relationship that is not the way that it's supposed to be. Maybe there's resentment to your spouse, or, or maybe, there's, um, maybe there's a relationship where there's some immorality. Maybe there's a, a love of money. Maybe there's, whatever it is, there's, there's this thing that you're clinging to, and you say, okay, I, I know that this is not the way that leads to life. I know that this is a, a, a wrong thing for me to do, but I'm, but I'm clinging to it, and I'm unwilling to let go of this because I love this thing so much. Repentance is saying, I recognize that this thing that I'm clinging to that is sin is not that which leads to life. And a person who says, I'm unwilling to let go of this sin and to turn from it, to recognize it as sin, a person who's unwilling to do that is not a person who can be confident that they're a believer. Maybe it's rebellion to parents, a refusal to forgive, a love of material things. All these things are, are crumbs that a person who's refusing to turn from them doesn't demonstrate that they have eternal life. Here's the third thing about a right response to the gospel. And boy, that, can you guys hear me? The rain is really coming down here. And I'm honestly a little glad because I was feeling bad about canceling service outside. But now I'm feeling pretty smart. Okay, until I fall back in the water, then I'll be pretty dumb again. Okay, the third thing that a right response to the gospel message requires is a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. A belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, repent, and what we see in, in the book of Acts is that belief and repentance are inseparable. Here, Peter's going to say, repent, but later, Paul is going to say to the Philippian jailer, when the jailer says, what do I do to be saved? He's going to say, believe, and really, these are two sides of the same coin. You can't turn from something without turning to something. So, we're turning away from sin and to Jesus Christ. We're turning from sin and 
believing and trusting, repentance and belief are absolutely inseparable. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is going to talk to the Ephesian elders and say, look, I, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God. So I'm turning because of God's command, saying these things are sinful. I'm re repenting and placing, my and placing faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. These are really the same act, the same act in the book of Acts. To repent, you must believe something. Here, Peter is saying you need, to, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. There are things about Jesus they need to believe. Biblical faith isn't just agreeing that something is true, but it's placing our faith and our confidence in Jesus Christ as Lord and Messiah. Here's the fourth thing that we need to do, a right response to the gospel requires. The fourth thing is baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the fourth thing a right response to the gospel message requires. Peter says to them, repent, and then he says, and be baptized. Now here, I believe that he is, he's talking about the whole process of, of, of conversion, okay? So he's not just saying that, he's not saying baptism is what forgives your sins. He's saying, look, if, if you want to be a Christian, what you need to do is you need to re you repent, and there he's talking about repentance and belief, and then the fruit of that needs to be seen, and the fruit of that is obedience to God. Apart from obedience to God, there's a concern that true faith has occurred. Paul's talking here about the totality of the conversion experience. The, the, con the connection between being baptized and your sins forgiven isn't causal. Like Baptism doesn't cause your sins to be forgiven. It's, it's temporal. It's all happening here as a person is, is entering into the church, is becoming a Christian. All these things are, are going to happen when there's genuine repentance and belief. Genuine repentance and belief is going to produce faith. Peter is not answering the question, at what moment am I saved? If, if you say, okay, Peter, exactly exact what second ha am I saved? And exactly what causes my sins to be forgiven? Peter would have a, a different answer. But here, what are the people asking? They're saying, okay, Peter, we're in trouble. The, the day of judgment is coming. What do I need to do? How do, I, how do I become a part of this new covenant? How do I become a part of the people of God? How do I remove God's wrath from me? And Peter's saying, look, you need to be a part of God's people. That means you repent, so you believe. There's genuine belief that God brings, and then there's, there's fruit that's going to flow from that as you're part of God's people, and you need to identify yourself with God's people. There are no... In the book of Acts, there are no semi-disciples. There are no people who say, you know what, I'm going to kind of do a, a little bit of affirming of who Christ is, but not walk the path of obedience and discipleship. That's, that's not a category that exists in the book of Acts. There's either disciples who have truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ and their life reflects that, or there are people who are not disciples, who are still enemies of God. Imagine, imagine I invited you over to a, a campfire. So we're going to have a, a campfire tonight. And you said, boy, that sounds exciting. I love campfires. Maybe a little hot tonight, but in the fall. And we sat down, and there's logs, and you said, Daniel, aren't, aren't you going to start the fire? I said, well, the fire's already going. You look at the logs, and you said, well, Daniel, I don't, I don't see any ash. 
I don't see any smoke. I don't, I don't see any flames. Daniel, I do not think you have a fire going. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Smoke doesn't cause a fire. Ashes don't cause a fire. Flames don't cause a fire. Well, I don't know about that, but that's not, that's not the essence of a fire. He said, well, well, no, but if I don't see flames and I, I don't see smoke and I don't, I don't see ashes, I, I don't think you have a fire there, buddy. The same is true in the Christian life where we see no fruit, where we see none of the things accompanying genuine repentance and belief, there's a question. Is faith there at all? Is true biblical faith existing? And, and Peter, I think, would say, no, this is, this is concerning. What this means is this in terms of baptism, and this is something we see in the book of Acts. A right response to the gospel message means, means fruit. And one of the most essential fruits that a genuine believer is going to exhibit is the, the fruit of baptism, of, of publicly proclaiming what's taken place internally. When a person becomes a Christian, there's, there's an internal baptism of the Holy Spirit. Every believer has been baptized by the Holy Spirit spiritually and internally. And now one of the, one of the, the quintessential marks of a believer is to respond by a public declaration of that. And the four young men who are going to be baptized this morning are being absolutely obedient to God in responding rightly to the gospel message. This is part of the right response to the gospel message that all believers should engage in. Now, you see, there's a lot of questions sometimes that go with baptism. We've talked about those several years ago. But I, I would encourage, maybe there are some of in our, our audience, maybe some of you younger kids who say, okay, maybe you're five or six years old, or, or maybe even a little bit older than that, you say, okay, well, I've, I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ, and I want to be obedient here. And one of the things we encourage you to do, those of you who are younger, or those of you who are parents of younger children, is, is to encourage your children in that desire. Say, okay, that, that is a great desire you have, but what we see in the book of Acts, and what we see, I think, throughout the rest of Scripture, is the ability to, to profess that, that faith, to say, okay, my, my faith is not just saying some facts about Jesus. It's not just reciting some, some Bible verses about Jesus. I'm, I'm old enough to be able to, to confess Christ, to say, okay, this is who I'm trusting in for my eternal life. And so we encourage people to be prepared, a young person who's responded rightly to the gospel, to be working with their parents and with church leaders to be preparing for that, that baptism. And, and maybe you haven't been obedient to this, this command. Maybe you're older. You haven't been obedient to this command of the Lord to be baptized. And there's some fear. And we'd love to talk with you about how we, can, how we can help you be obedient to God, what sort of accommodations we can make to help you proclaim your faith in Jesus Christ through baptism as, as Peter and God call you to here in this passage. But it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be baptized on a live stream service. You don't have to be baptized in front of 500 people. There are different ways in which we can be obedient to God in this, in this area. And we've talked more about that in the past. I'd love to talk with you more about that if that's something you'd like to. Last things here about right response to the gospel message. Number five, a right response to the gospel message requires God's sovereign election. Peter says here, this, this promise, and the promise here he's talking about is of the, the reception of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children. So I think he's talking there about, about the, the, the people that are, that are his audience. And then I think there's a, an a, a lack of awareness that he has of even the words that he's saying here. He says, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, 
I don't think Peter fully understands. I know, based on what we see later in the book of Acts, Peter doesn't fully understand the, the breadth of that calling, the breadth of what it means that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter's still going to have a conception that a person needs to become Jewish in order to rightly respond to the gospel message, or that's going to be a, a part of it. But, but here, we begin to see the, the widespread nature of this gospel call, and that everyone that God sovereignly elects, it says, all that God calls to himself are saved. Now, the comfort, I think, of this doctrine that Peter alludes to here, the doctrine of God's election of us, is, is a confidence. In other words, my response to the gospel message is not a human work. It's not something that I have to say, well, did I, did I do it right enough or do I do it well enough? Am I, if I had, uh, have, I, have I done all the things I have to do? Our salvation is not dependent upon us responding just so or we lose our salvation. Our confidence is in God's saving work. And as we hear the gospel message and as the Spirit convicts us of sin, even after we're believers, what do we do? We continue to repent and continue to trust in God, his son Jesus Christ, and his righteousness. That brings us to the last thing here, the sixth thing. A right response to the gospel message requires continued fruit and perseverance. He says in verse 40, Luke writes, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his words were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Now, when he says in verse 40, the ESV says, says save yourselves, it's, it's actually better rendered, be saved. In other words, it's kind of this exhortation that highlights both God's work and man's role here. God is going to continue to, to, to allow you to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's going to continue to, to save you. He's going to continue to give you his grace to be obedient. It's the, the work of God that we respond to as we continue to walk in obedience. If we don't see, if we don't see continued fruit and perseverance in the things of the Lord, there should be a great concern in our hearts. Have I rightly responded to the gospel message? And if we don't see continued fruit, and perseverance in our life, the answer is, is no. Every human being, every human being, when confronted with the reality of their sin by, by God's grace, must ask the same question that Peter's audience does here. What do I do? How do I respond to this? What's the, what's the right thing to do when, I, when I'm convicted of my sin? And what we see here is that a right response to the gospel message, first of all, requires the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. When we ask that question in itself, we can, we can thank God that we're asking that question because it's his grace that's allowing us to ask it. There should be repentance from sin, turning from sin and saying, I, I no longer desire to follow these crumbs that I know leads to my slaughter, but I desire to pursue the beauty of Jesus Christ. A right response requires belief in the Lord Jesus. It requires us to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It requires God's sovereign election of us and our continued fruit and perseverance. And this morning, we as a church have the opportunity to witness the, the baptisms and encourage some brothers in Christ. And so let me pray. And as I pray, after I pray, I'm going to ask those who are being baptized this morning to come join us on the stage. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for the gospel, for this message that your son Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life in our place, died in our place, rose from the dead, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. We look forward to the day in which 
your gospel message is completed, where your enemies are, are put under your foot, and we can, we can rejoice with you forever. And now, before that time comes, we pray that we be faithful to rightly respond to the gospel message by believing in your son Jesus, by turning from our sins, by believing in your son Jesus, and professing our faith in him, and walking in continued obedience. Give us the strength we, do to, we need to do so. Give us your grace, and we pray this in the matchless name of your son Jesus. Amen.